So this is John 1, 14 through 18. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alex. Have fun in Crossroads. Uh, now, for the kids who were all listening and paying attention, I want you to put on earmuffs because I'm going to talk about cuss words. Stacey Lyons is going to really love me for this. <laughs> cuss words, you know where cuss words comes from. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's from curse words. Maybe you've heard those used interchangeably. Some cuss words maybe shouldn't be necessarily curse words. They're just silly bathroom language. But curse words comes from this idea of literally a cursing someone. It often is rooted in religious language, even biblical language. Uh, it's, it's this notion of what's the worst curse I can do? Well, it's to call down God's curses. To condemn someone in the name of God is the worst thing I could possibly say. To call out the judgment of God on someone. What's interesting is some words that connote that are definitely bad words, but other words that connote the exact same thing for some reason aren't. One such word that I think is very evocative, it's very potent language, but it's not considered a curse word, is God forsaken. You ever heard that phrase, this God forsaken place? What do you think of when you think of the word God forsaken? I'll tell you what I see, it's very particular. It's dark brown mud, gray skies, heavy clouds, barren fields in Baser, Kansas. Now, if you're from Baser, Kansas, um, uh, I, I love you, God loves you, you're not God forsaken. Uh, but the reason why that image comes to mind is because of my father and his background. He grew up in Baser, Kansas. He grew up on the farm. Now, many people have very fond memories of growing up on a farm or being on a farm. My father did have good memories, but for the most part, my father spent most of his childhood getting away from the farm. To getting, I mean, his goal was to get into college and never look back, and he did. The farm, there's, you know, there's a reason why the phrase, he bought the farm, is a euphemism for he died. Because it's hard, grueling work, not typically financially rewarding terribly. Um, and for my grandfather, it was bequeathed to him against his will. It was a heavy burden. He couldn't get away, uh, wait to get away from it. My father was the same. And so that's what comes to my mind. When I was an adult, I visited Baser, Kansas with my then new wife. She was baptized into the full crazy that is my family. And we went to visit the Walden family farm. I'm sure she was thinking, is there a way I can get out of this thing? Like, I didn't know about this. Um, but in that... Uh, particular uh, visit, that's where I saw the, the grace Kansas skies, the thick brown mud, 
the dead fields, and my father probably used the phrase, this God-forsaken place. I don't know what you think of when you hear that phrase. Uh, Ezekiel had this image of God-forsakenness in his mind. Ezekiel had this terrific vision and terrible vision of seeing the throne, the mobile throne of God evacuate the temple, which meant the house of God was forsaken. And with the forsakenness of his own temple came the forsakenness of his own people. God, in abandoning his house and leaving the building, God left Israel, vulnerable to her enemies. And it's not long after Ezekiel's vision, the Babylonians come into southern Judah, into the south, and decimate them and send them into exile. And when they are in exile, they are in a God-forsaken country, far removed from God's blessed presence. And in that dark suburb of Babylon, they waited. This image of God-forsakenness at the exile finds its horrific and climactic expression in Jesus' teachings about Gehenna, or another cuss word that's in our Bibles, hell. Hell, C.S. Lewis described as that gray town where everyone is moving further and further away from the other. It's the suburbs on steroids. And, and there, uh, we are isolated from each other and more importantly, from God. It is a God-forsaken place the ultimate God-forsakenness. The opposite of this forsakenness of God is God-presence. It's God's, God's with us. It's God filling our presence and filling our lives. It's being, to use an old word, God-full, not God-forsaken. And this is what the psalmists, for instance, and the prophets sing about when they, they sing about God's presence and wanting to be in God's presence. There's a reason why the psalmist praises the courts of God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. The swallow finds a nest in a, at your altar. There's a reason why they say, as the deer pants for the water, so I, here I am in my exile. I'm panting to be back in your presence at the temple because God, they were longing to be in the life-giving presence of God. One thing I ask, David writes, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon what? The beauty of the temple? The glory of the tabernacle? No. He says to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. It isn't the angels and the architecture that makes David's head swim and his heart sing. It's the angel of the presence of God manifested in the temple the tabernacle. Why? Because in God's presence, as David sings elsewhere, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is life. And that's what I'm praying for this morning. As we talk about this text, we look at what John says about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. We see that the the life-giving presence full of grace and truth has come and filled our lives. Never to abandon us. Never to be uh, forsaken. So with that said, would you pray with me? Pray that God would visit His people. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come in your power and in your presence, that we would see your glory, which is the glory of your grace and truth, the fullness of your grace and truth, grace upon grace in your truth. We pray that you would wash us now in that grace and truth through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, looking at the very first verse, verse 14, let me just dive in right there. And the Word became flesh. That's a very loaded phrase. We're going to come back to it at the end. I'm going to jump right to the second phrase, and dwelt among us. Now, if you've ever heard a sermon on, on John 1.14, you've probably heard that the word dwell there, dwelt among us, uh, literally is tabernacled, or he pitched his tent among us. And that language is borrowed from the Old Testament, from Exodus in particular, when God pitched his tent among the people of God. Uh, you, you see it in Exodus 25.9 on the screen. And here's this God talking to Moses. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture so you shall make it. There, there's a heavenly pattern to be mimicked in this earthly expression. But there God will set up tent. The king of Israel, the king of the army, will encamp with his soldiers Or more accurately put, perhaps, God married His bride Israel on Mount Sinai. He entered into a covenant relationship with her. And now the bridegroom moves in with His bride. They're living together. God lives with His people. And when they built the tabernacle, just as it was patterned, at the end of Exodus, Exodus 40 is the climactic finale And this cloud, this glory cloud, later in Hebrew, the word Shekinah was used to describe it, the Shekinah glory. And interestingly enough, I think John's doing this on purpose, the word for indwell or dwelt has the same sound as Shekinah in the Greek. And so it would have resonated that the glory cloud that represented God's full presence comes upon the tabernacle. So thick was the presence of God, Moses couldn't even enter the tent of meeting as he was accustomed to doing. I mean, he was like thrust outside of it. It was so overwhelming. God moving in with his bride. But what John tells us is even more remarkable. He comes not in a tent, and he doesn't just come into a temporary structure for a visit. He indwells human flesh. God came in the flesh to dwell with us in the flesh forever. The image of the temple and its being patterned after this heavenly pattern is very important because the, 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 the tabernacle and later the temple had a lot of symbolism built into it that was very deliberate. And my ESV study Bible Uh, has this note. It says, it describes the tabernacle as a mini Eden. It was a miniature version of Eden. It has has all the flora and fauna in its decoration. The the candelabra that was used as as the light of the temple was built and crafted to look like a tree with fruit. And built into the curtains were pomegranates and these other images of of, of, of this robust garden of paradise. 
The, the, the temple faced east. And its curtains that blocked the courtyard and the entrance into the inner sanctum, that, those thick curtains were woven with an image of cherubim guarding the way into the eastern entrance, the primary entrance into the temple, the tabernacle. Well, you might remember that the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, was guarded by a cherubim at the eastern entrance. So this, in various numbers of ways, the, the tabernacle was meant to picture paradise. Why? Because paradise is where God is. Paradise is to be in the presence of God, to be like Adam and Eve before they sinned, walking with God in the cool of the day. Full, unmitigated fellowship with God is heaven itself. And that's what the tabernacle was a picture. It was a miniature heaven on earth. That's why the psalmist longed, if I could only spend one day in your courts, it's better than a thousand elsewhere. Because there is God my exceeding joy. There is life. What's interesting, in Genesis 2, it describes a river flowing out of Eden into the Garden of Eden. They're two separate things. And then out of the garden, out of its eastern entrance, it splits off into four channels. And where the rivers flow is life. In one of the, one of the regions, it, uh, the, the, the author notes that where the river flowed, there was gold and all these precious jewels in the earth. It's like wherever this river flowed, it just caused flourishing, riches. What's striking is Ezekiel has that horrible image at the beginning of his prophecy. At the end of his prophecy, he has a much better image, a new house of God, a new temple, and God moves into his new temple. And guess what's flowing out of the eastern entrance? A river. And wherever that river flows, life springs up. It turns even the salty ocean into fresh water. And the further it goes, the deeper the river gets. On both sides of the river are trees that bear fruit every single month, fresh fruit. And the leaves are for the healing of his people. John borrows this image from the ancient prophet in his last book, Revelation. Look what he writes of the new heavens and the new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Why not the temple? Why doesn't it flow from the temple? Well, because earlier in chapter 21, John says there is no temple in the new heavens and the earth. The whole thing's a temple. The whole heaven and earth is filled with the presence of God. The whole thing is the fullness of his blessed presence. And flowing out from the throne of God, the source of all life and goodness, is this river. And look what he goes on to say. On either side of the river, the tree of life. We're back in the Garden of Eden with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Sound familiar? It's not a coincidence that John has Jesus standing up in the temple on the last day of one of the great feasts of Israel and he sees the crowds and he cries out with a loud voice, let whoever is thirsty come to me and drink. Believe in me and out of your heart will flow a river of living water. Jesus is the divine presence, the source of all goodness and grace 
and it will overflow into us and from us to others. And so we see, uh, it goes on in verse 14, and the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. Glory full of grace and truth. He will repeat that phrase, as Alex pointed out in verse 17. From his fullness we've received grace upon grace. Verse 16, the law was, came, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Now, it's interesting to note, truth or true is a favorite word of John. If you were to like do a, a word study on the word true or truth, you would see it all over John's writings. But you know what isn't in John's writings, except here and here alone, interestingly, is the word grace. John just doesn't use it. He uses other words. But he does here, and he does so four times. So, like Alex said, we should pay attention. Why does he use in particular this phrase he repeats, grace and truth? Most students of the Bible believe John here is is translating a phrase from the Old Testament. The phrase in Hebrew is chesed, which you might have heard, and emet. Chesed is often translated as loving kindness or steadfast love. And emet as faithfulness or trueness, being true to your word. And so this phrase, when you look up chesed and emet, it's all over the Old Testament. Have you heard this one? St where, when God shows up, Psalm, Psalm 85 says, when God shows up, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Grace and truth meet. Righteousness and peace kiss. Or all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. All the paths are grace and truth. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Grace and truth go before you. Why? Because it is the very character of God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 86, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding, full of steadfast love, grace, and faithfulness, truth. Now, the prophets and poets repeat that phrase throughout their writings. But they didn't coin it, like so often is the case. It was first found in Moses. In a very important encounter that Moses has with God that, that really helps us understand John 1. John's using it and hearkening back to it. He's echoing it. And that was this incredible experience in Exodus 33 where Moses boldly pleads with God, all right, I've tasted your glory and it's pretty good. Now show it all to me. Show me your glory. Remember that? And, and God says, all right, I'll put you in a crack in a rock and I'll cover you with my hands so that when I pass by, you won't be overwhelmed and you'll see my backside. So you'll see my glory, but no man can see my face and live. Right? No man has ever seen God at any time but the only God has made him known. Moses didn't get to see the fullness of God, but he did see a glimpse. And here's what he saw. Chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended, there again in the cloud, 
And he stood with Moses there. And, he, and what did he do? How did he proclaim his glory? He preached. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. That is to say the character of Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and preached Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The fullness of God's glory, guys, is the fullness of grace and truth. It's his goodness. That is the glory of God, which Moses saw in part. He glimpsed and it was preached to him. But in Christ, we get the full expression. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon or grace after or grace in the place of grace. Moses gave us grace in the law. We saw grace and truth in the law. But in Christ Jesus, we get the whole enchilada. We get the real deal. The law was perfect, but it wasn't the complete revelation of grace and truth. In Christ, you get the full revelation, the full face of God with zero remainder. And what is it? It's grace and truth. And that's good news because I don't know about you, I need truth. I live in a culture of lies. I have politicians lying to me. I don't know who to believe. I have religious leaders lying to me. It's filled with hype and hyperbole, half-truths, pseudoscience, propaganda, internet rumors, Twitter slander. Just, I live in a world of lies and I lie to myself. I'm a man of self-deception. I desperately need truth. Oh God, give us truth. And not just truth as in like facts. Facts are vital. They're divine. But behind the facts is a reality. And it's real as opposed to what's fake or fake facsimile or simulated. I don't need, guys, a simulation of worship this morning to like go through the motions. I don't need it. I need true worship. The way Jesus put it, God the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. I need a real encounter with the living God who is full of grace and truth. And I need his grace because the truth about me is not good. The truth about my own heart, what I do know, what I haven't deceived myself about, frankly, scares me. I am left to my own devices God forsaken, but by the grace of God, I am not. By the grace of God, by his loving kindness, whereby he isn't just faithful or true to his word, he is tender-hearted and merciful. Couldn't you use a little bit of mercy today? Could you use some compassion? Guys, you have access to one who is overflowing with compassion. Your sins will never outdo the depths of his grace. Your need can never sound the depths of his tender mercies. He is compassionate toward you. He is merciful toward you. He is loving kindness is towards you. He, does, he loves you. He likes you. 
And he is, his mercies are, are, are moved toward you. And the fullness of those mercies are ours in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus, as we said, isn't just a, a, a snapshot of the divine. Moses got a snapshot. He's the fullness. We have seen his glory. I love this phrase. Moses saw the glory of God, but not what John saw. I, Moses saw the glimpse, but John says we have seen his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father. We, we got the full expression. <laughs> the only begotten meaning he is begotten of the Father before time as we confessed. He is the full divine expression of God. God in the previous times, uh, Hebrews tells us, communicated to us through dreams and visions and all kinds of bizarre things in the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us through his son. And it is a far better, fuller revelation. He has spoken clearly and revealed himself without remainder in the fullness of God of Christ Jesus. This is how... The Apostle Paul puts it, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of it. Or again in chapter 2, for in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All that God is, you see in Jesus. That's why John could say, I know that in God there is light and there is no darkness at all. Do you know how I know that? Because I knew Jesus and he was light and there was no darkness in him. And all that Jesus is, is all that God is. And all that God is, and his character, Jesus is. The fullness of grace and truth. And guys, that's good news. We need all that God is. We need it. And he's happy to give it to us. And here's, here's the other side of the good news. That word became flesh. Let's go back there to our last point here. The word became flesh. I love that John uses such a gritty word as flesh. He could have used Paul's word. The word became human form or took on the form of a servant. Those are great words, but he doesn't. He uses the crass language of flesh. Flesh and bone, blood and guts, marrow and tendon, Right? He gets gritty and earthy because that's exactly what God did. He entered into our oily flesh, our stinky flesh. You know, after the first service, someone sent me this quote. It's fantastic about what did, what did it smell like in the old world? You guys ready for this? This is wonderful. People stank of sweat and unwashed clothes. From their mouths came the stench of rotting teeth. From their bellies, that of onions. And from their bodies, if they were no longer very young, came the stench of rancid cheese and sour milk and tumorous disease. How does that sound? The rivers stank. The marketplaces stank. The churches stank. It stank beneath all the bridges and all the palaces. The peasants stank, as did the priest. The apprentice, as did his master's wife. The whole of the aristocracy stank. Even the king himself stank. Stank like a rank lion. And the queen like an old goat. Summer and winter. For the eight, in the 18th century, there was nothing to hinder bacteria busy at decomposition. And so there was no human activity, either constructive or destructive, to manifest, or no manifestation of germinating or decaying life that was not accompanied by stench. Into the stink, God enters into all, all the fullness of his glory in life. That's good news. Uh, 
Because when he took on human flesh, it was our flesh he took on. Your very flesh. Look what, it, look what uh, we, we confessed earlier. This is from the Athanasian Creed, but this is important. This we believe and confess, that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both human and God equally. Equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human. I say this because I think sometimes we think because of the incarnation, because Jesus was God, that somehow his humanity was, less, was more than human. That he was sort of super human. But he wasn't. His humanity was flesh. It was frail, feeble, and stinky. He had all the, the, the openness of temptations that you all have and I have. Some would say that it was easier for, for Jesus to deal with temptations because he was God. But I think theologians are right to say it was much harder than it is for us. Because unlike you and I, Jesus never caved into temptation. The pressure never went away. The pull of the flesh never yielded because he never yielded. It was in his human nature he experienced this frail and feeble and weak. And that's important because that means our feeble and fail, uh, failing flesh can be richly blessed with the divine life. It can be filled to the brim of the divine life. You know, he, when he entered into this world, he took on flesh. He didn't take on some abstract flesh. He took on a very particular flesh from Mary. That's what we see here. From his, he took his human nature from his mother. He had a very particular genetic code. It wasn't your genetic code or mine exactly. His skin was much darker than mine. His eyes were undoubtedly brown. Mine are hazel. His hair was black and curly. He did not look like me. He was an ancient Jew born in the first century Palestine under Roman rule in some podunk small town. Nevertheless, he took on my human nature. And this is hard for us to grasp in a day and age where in our talk about diversity, which is part of God's creation, we so distance ourselves from one another that only those who are human in the very particular way we imagine ourselves to be human can truly represent us. But in Jesus taking on the flesh of a first century Jewish man in ancient Palestine, he took on the flesh of not just the palest Norwegian you've ever seen, but he took on the flesh of the darkest Sudanese woman you've ever seen. He represents not just man, but also woman. He took on our flesh because behind all of our differences is the one common image of God. And so whatever, whatever our history, whatever our stories, whatever our peculiar temptations, whatever our ethnicities, whatever our religious backgrounds, Jesus took upon himself your nature. He represented you. He represented me. And he filled this nature, this body to the brim with divine life preparing the way for the Holy Spirit and for the resurrection to come. The light of the world that enlightens all humanity, whatever its diverse classifications may be. 
was coming into the world. And yet the world that was handcrafted by him did not recognize him. He came to his own flesh and blood, to his Jewish people, and they did not receive him. But whoever does receive him, he gives the right to be called children of God. Do you know why? Because they share his divine nature. He gives it to us. We become children of God. But we must receive him. It isn't automatic. He took on human nature, but only those who receive him, who come to him to drink, will be filled with these rivers of life. Guys, I need this. I don't know about you, but I want the life of God flowing through my veins, through my fingertips. I want rivers of life flowing from my heart, overflowing. I want the glory of God and His grace and goodness radiating from my chest. How about you? Then let's, let's pray. And let's, let's embrace and receive this one who gives this life to us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given the gift of your Son, that you so loved the world, you gave your only begotten for us. Lord, so, so were your tender mercies that you gave what you did not need to give, and certainly we didn't deserve. But out of the riches of your love, Lord, you poured this out for us. And Lord Jesus, you so loved humanity that you took on our humanity forever. You indwelt these fingers, these, these toes, this feeble body to make it immortal. Lord, indwell us now. We cling to you. We come and we drink. Lord, would you fill us now even as we sing. Fill us with your life, Lord Jesus. May we keep coming back to this well over and over again. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.
Uh, in this psalm, David said that uh, claimed promises that God had given specifically to him. But because of Jesus Christ, David's greater son, and because of your union with Jesus Christ through faith, these promises are yours. And so I want you to receive them as a good word for you today and for tomorrow uh, and for uh, the rest of our days. But uh, <clears throat> sorry, my, my, uh, my sacred ribbon here fell out. So uh, Psalm 16, here's what David writes in his praise. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see decay. You make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Receive his grace and truth and go in peace. But of course, before you do, grab a quick seat.